0: This is the podcast for the Jeremiah Johnston Show. Don't forget that you can listen to us across the Faith Radio Network for the entire hour, Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central or 10 a.m. Eastern. If you want your question read on the show or have any comments, send it to jeremiah at askjjj.com. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Dr. John. Hello. uh,
1: Hello. Uh, Well, since you guys are Christian thinkers. So I just want to leave that question.
0: I wanted to get your input on that
1: appreciate it. Thank you, Douglas.
0: That's my question. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. Welcome to the Jeremiah Johnston Show, combining cutting-edge biblical scholarship with meaningful, thought-provoking discussions and practical answers to your questions. It's time to own your faith and be a Christian thinker with our host, author, Bible scholar, apologist, and president of the Christian Thinker Society, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. I want to welcome everyone joining us across Faith Radio Network in the Central and Eastern Time Zones. This is Jeremiah Johnson. It's a joy to have you with us and then thousands of you who listen to this program on demand through our different podcast formats, online, our blogs, wherever you are connecting from, whenever you're connecting It's a joy to and hopefully inspire you to have a thinking faith, a conversant faith, to be a Christian thinker, to love God with your heart, soul, and mind. I want to equip you with a very important broadcast today to answer what I believe is the most important apologetics question of our time. The job of Christian apologetics is to make sure that we answer the questions that our culture is asking about the faith today. And friends, after receiving 30,000 questions that have been texted to me, In our live events, emailed to me through this media show and others, without a doubt, the number one question that Christians are struggling with today in our churches are questions related to mental health, mental wellness, mental illness, anxiety, depression, etc. And this is something that we have to begin answering as a church. I cannot tell you how many people have told me they have never, after years of attending a church, heard mental health ever even addressed from the pulpit. And so I have a very important message that I'm going to be sharing with you today, four ways that we answer this number one apologetics question of our time. Later in the broadcast, I have my good friend, John Gibson, chairman of energy technology at Tudor Pickering Holt company here in Houston. He's been a great guest in the past. One of our most downloaded shows of all time is a program we did with him on Christianity and the intersection of faith and business. We're going to be discussing mental health in the workplace, what that looks like. I I receive so many questions from you who who wanna know, how do I do mental health right in the workspace? Uh, So friends, stay with us, make sure you're listening, and pray for somebody in your life who you can have the ministry of presence with after hearing today's broadcast. Stay with us, I'll be right back. (music) I want to take you now to a national conference where I was asked to address a couple thousand mental health professionals on this subject that I titled mental health the number one apologetics question of our time certainly I believe the most consequential conversation we can have in the church today let's go to the message Thank you all. Uh, A year ago today, it was my privilege to give one of the plenary sessions at the World Conference in Nashville, and it's been a delight to catch up with so many of you since then. Um, And Dr. Clinton is exactly right. I actually think it's quite appropriate that I speak about mental illness, given that I have three two-year-olds at home right now. It has made me an expert in such things. Uh, In fact, we, we actually have a little family photo to show you all, all five kids, if we can bring it up on the screen. There they are, and um, what's even cooler, y'all, my amazing wife, who is a saint, is somewhere in the audience right now. Audrey Lynn told me we were gonna have one more baby, and friends, we went from two to five, and now we play a zone defense, and all five of those kids are back in Houston, so just pray the house doesn't burn down while I'm speaking to you, okay? Um, I learned a long time ago in ministry uh, that Christians They don't gossip, do they? They just share prayer requests. Have you noticed this? Um, And I learned this because, sadly, um, I was associate pastor at a local church, and a sweet family scheduled an appointment with me, and I thought it was such an unusual request. They said, Pastor Jeremy, as I was known then, they said, we would like your permission to join this church. And I said, well, you don't need my permission to join our church. Um, they said, well, we were just asked to leave our last church because our daughter, and of course, this was shared via prayer request throughout the church, our daughter suffers from bipolar and they've told us that our daughter's demon-possessed and we're no longer welcome to come back to the church. Well, of course, I said, yes, you will join this Sunday. I will stand with your family. And the Lord, it works in mysterious ways because as a young seminarian, I graduated with my Master of Divinity. And what I think is so vitally important about what you all do in equipping the church is there is a whole sector of ministry that they they simply do not train you for in seminary. And some of you who have been to seminary, you probably can identify with what I'm saying. The first funeral, and I'm going to show you a clip in a moment, a brief clip, The first funeral I ever officiated was of a woman in our church who had just been voted Teacher of the Year, dynamic Christian woman, who in a chronic place of anxiety went out and took her life. I mean, they just don't have a category. And so the Lord gave me these opportunities um, and really softened my heart towards this issue. And then when Audrey and I began nine years ago, living in Oxford, our ministry, which inspires Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christian. As I said at World Conference last year, Jesus asks over 300 questions in the gospels. And one of the most important things that Jesus teaches us is it's okay to have an unanswered question. It is not a sin to question our faith. And friends, and I have to say this, if everything we say is true about the Christian faith, the Christian faith should be able to withstand our most difficult questions. And I wanna also say this, God is a big boy. Did you know that? (laughs) He can take your most difficult questions. He is not soft, he can take it. Uh, I wanna introduce you, and by the way, you're gonna wanna have your cell phone ready. Um, I want to resource and equip you with as many materials as I can. And at our Facebook page at Christian Thinker Society, I've actually already posted some of the key slides for my presentation. So go to Facebook, Christian Thinker Society. I hope you'll go ahead and like our page. But right there, you'll be able to actually save uh, some of the images that I'm showing. I want to show you an interesting slide. This is actually a place that's known as the Gap in Sydney, Australia. The Gap. Sandstone cliffs, and it's right at the mouth of Sydney Harbor, which if you know anything about harbors, it's the deepest... Uh, deepest watered harbor in the world. Well, there are multi-million dollar uh, properties, but The Gap is now one of the top five most frequented suicide spots in the world. In fact, on average, one person each week takes their life, complete suicide, jumping off the cliff of The Gap. Um, I read about this amazing story. This is a man uh, whose name is Don Ritchie. And Don, for over five decades, lived across the street from The Gap, And he would wake up each and every day, and he sold life insurance, ladies and gentlemen. He was not a licensed professional or psychologist, but he would wake up and he would pull out his binoculars and he would see if anyone looked like they were having serious contemplation of ending their life at the Gap. And do you know what he would do, Mr. Ritchie, and let's just keep the slide up for a moment because I just want to look at, I want to study this man, a businessman an insurance salesman, he would walk up and you see the little three-foot fence, that's all that, that, that protected people from jumping off the edge, and he would walk up and he would just simply ask the individual who he knew was struggling, he would say, uh, my name is Don, can I help you with something? And you know it was amazing, just that act of kindness, of walking up, it's official now, he saved over 220 lives, 220, although What's kind of cool is Don said he doesn't keep track. His family says it's more like 400. And so Don, he just died, he received the Order of Australia. Isn't that a neat picture? Just recognized. He said, you know, I used to sell vacuums and kitchen Aids. then I sold, I sold life insurance, but he said at The Gap, I sell life. Friends, that's what we're selling. Jesus Christ said that he came to give us life and to give it abundantly. When Jesus preached, The Sermon on the Mount, he used those eight beatitudes, blessed, blessed, blessed. Do you know what the Greek translation is? Happy. The Christian life can be a happy life. The Christian life can, yes, be a victorious life. Does not mean that it's free from, victoria- from adversity, but it, we can have great happiness and joy in the midst of the storms. And so, this is the slide that we show in audiences all over the world, just simply our social media. And we asked audiences to engage with us by just texting their questions. And, friends, as I mentioned last night, we've received 10,000 text message questions. And we aggregated those top six into what you just saw in the video. And we produced a book and a Bible study and a video series and a curriculum that's now being used by thousands of counselors around Christendom because we are having the conversations that the church is not. And isn't it fascinating that there's no, there's no aisle in the Christian bookstore for the Christian and mental health? Isn't that terrible? And yet we need to be equipped to speak to these issues. And friends, I want to just mention this very carefully. Um, the church, I believe, should be the first spot that men, men and women go to when they're having a mental crisis. Why is it that when our sons or our daughters, our grandsons, our granddaughters, our neighbors, our relatives are having a psychotic break, and you probably teach this in your practice, they end up in one of two places. Have you noticed this? Because I've been to both, probably like you have. They either end up in jail or they end up where? In the emergency room. I interviewed a young lady by the name of Anna for my unanswered book. She grew up in a church. She comes from a quintessential Christian family, but she struggled with the most fatal of all the mental illnesses. She struggles with with eating with eating disorder. It got so chronic, it was so chronic that she had trouble standing during worship because of body images. She could not engage in even taking communion or the Lord's supper. And she said, I never heard, and she goes to a fabulous church, by the way, but she said, I never heard anything in my church that helped me through my mental illness and eating disorder. And she said, as long as I stayed silent about my mental illness, it gave it so much power over me. She said, truly, it was an invisible disease. And so many of our people are struggling with an invisible disease. And so, yes, we have to teach pastors coping methods, intervention steps. We have to teach that in our churches. And I'm delighted uh, that in my travels discussing this issue in the last four years, I'm delighted uh, by so many strategic programs that are beginning in our local churches. But Don Ritchie reminds me that it's our job, as we just heard from Dr. Jantz, to bring people hope. We are the people who bring hope. The Bible is a book of suffering, but we are the people who bring hope. And when someone I think is struggling, it's important to know that they are not alone. And I'm not going to give you a lot of statistics, but I I was fascinated of a recent Lifeway statistic that one out of every three people in the pews, they've been either affected in their immediate family or a close friend by suicide. Truly mental challenges, they affect us all. So I believe that suicide, mental health, this is the number one apologetic question of our time. And friends, I want you to know this is an informed opinion. I'm an apologist. I'm on the front lines. I want to talk about theodicy and the problem of evil. I did my PhD, 93,000 words on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. But I uh, I cannot avoid what the data is telling us. This is the issue that the people in our pews want to discuss how we minister to this. And so that's what I want to focus in just my remaining few minutes. Uh, By the way, the church is the last one to the party to discuss this issue. I was fascinated that Yale's most popular class ever is a class that's overflowing now on happiness. This is Professor Santos. 78,000 people have taken this course in 168 countries, and it's about what happiness looks like. How do we define success and mental health and mental wellness? And this is the most Uh, most attended class of all time. There have been 500 news stories on it. It's fascinating to me, I actually took the course, the top barometer of a person's mental health, and I shared this recently at a commencement, is not the person's salary, not the size of their bank account, not the popularity or fame or platform they may have, one of the greatest, most important barometers of an individual's mental health. Are you ready for this? The ability to experience gratitude. The ability to experience peace and gratitude in life. But we know what we're up against, uh, you probably have seen this. The number one most Googled TV show in the last year is this show, uh, uh, what is it, 17 Reasons Why or whatever it is, I didn't watch it. Um, but a, a show that now I believe uh, is one of the most disgusting things because we know the copycat syndrome and gratifying completed suicide and how difficult it can be, but I just use this as an illustrative point, these are the conversations that people want to have, they need to have, so when the church is silent, when there's shame and exclusion, they're going to look elsewhere, and it should not be that way. Mental health, four keys to answer the most important apologetics question of our time. And friends, I want to remind you, uh, this is cold from the laboratory of our ministry, we've been on three global tours now. Here I am uh, speaking in the Southeast. Um, This is a group, all of these wives are wives of wounded warriors. And they said, Jeremiah, thank you so much for discussing the effects of mental illness, especially with our military vets. You know we lose 22 military vets a day to suicide. Uh, Here I am in Pembroke Pines, Florida. This is Tony, and by the way, I have permission from each of these individuals to share their story. Tony, a combat vet. Saw serious action, and by the way, built like the Incredible Hulk. You would not want to meet this guy in a dark alley. And yet he waited to talk to me, and this big, strong man, through tears, said, I've seen things in combat. I'm suicidal. Can you help me? This is the first time I've heard anything about it in my church. Uh, Here I am in Pensacola, Florida. This is a Super Bowl winner, Dominic, thank you, Dominic Nixon uh, for the New York Giants. Isn't this just such a beautiful family? There's our daughter, Lily Faith, with me, and he walks up to me, Super Bowl ring on his finger, and he said, Jeremiah, since I've been out of the league, I've struggled with so many mental challenges and anxiety, finding my place in the world. Don't ever stop challenging pastors to speak to this issue. Do you see how important it is that we raise these issues in our local churches? This one blessed me. Uh, this is Dennis. Uh, Dennis is the only one in his unit who survived an Afghanistan, an IED attack. And do you know what was the victory of this? He walks up to me after I preach. This was actually in a context of a worship service. He said, I'm going to go to my first PTSD meeting tomorrow. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnston. So we have to give the church permission, listen closely, permission To have this very important discussion. So point number one, how do we answer the most important apologetics question of our time? We need more humility, friends. And we'll be back after the break with the next part of my message, the number one apologetics question of our time. Jeremiah. Friends, welcome back to the program. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of a sound mind. Let's go to the next part of my message, the number one apologetics question of our time. I believe that vulnerability is the new superpower in reaching people. Aren't you tired of fake Christianity, plastic, inauthentic Christianity? That's not my kind of faith. I was fascinated, Um, and friends, I want you to know, I I hope you'll listen to it. We've just started a brand new national radio broadcast. I hope you'll subscribe to the Jeremiah Johnston Show, but talking about vulnerability and humility on this issue, I was interviewing J.P. Moreland, not about mental health, his new book, Scientism and Secularism, but I ask all of my guests, what is the most difficult, unanswered question that you personally have faced? And he said, and keep in mind, we weren't even discussing this. He said, well, that's an interesting question. And we're on our national radio show, okay? This isn't a private conversation. He said, Jeremiah, he said, um, well, I have a genetic predisposition for mental illness and, and anxiety and depression. Now, friends, J.P. Moreland, if we can bring the slide back up, he is one of the top 50 philosophers in the world. I don't mean just Christian philosophers, I mean philosophers in the world. And he said, I have a genetic predisposition. Do you know what he went on to say? You talk about vulnerability being a superpower. I've had two nervous breakdowns in the last 10 years. One lasted five months and the last one in 2013 lasted seven months and I had to stop teaching. But then he began to share how he came out of that depression and anxiety, that genetic predisposition, and he has a book coming out soon on finding peace. I think it's powerful, though, when leaders, those that are in leadership, take their mask off and they have a humility and a vulnerability with this issue. And friends, as the church, I believe we need more humility when we discuss this issue, don't you? We need to give people the permission to be real, and we need to escape the notion of, oh, there's always a Pharisee in the crowd, someone that's going to judge me for having this challenge. By the way, I don't have the time to go further in this point, but J.B. Phillips, you probably have the Phillips New Testament, Uh, bombs are dropping during the Nazi blitz in London and his youth group does not understand the authorized King James, he begins to translate the New Testament into the J.B. Phillips translation. He was the Eugene Peterson of his day, the Message Bible of his day. And don't you find it fascinating that for 50 years of this Bible scholar's life, he struggled with debilitating anxiety and depression. We need more humility when we discuss this. Secondly, and I think this is crucially important, biblical interpretation skills matter when we discuss mental health. What do I mean? I was speaking uh, at an arena with a, at a ladies' conference, and I, I, as I love to do, I hope to meet as many of you after this as I can, as we have time for, and I just love to hear people's unanswered questions, and I showed a clip. Uh, about suicide and mental health and a woman walks up to me at the the table and she said, Jeremiah, she was physically shaking, she said, thank you for telling us that the unpardonable sin is not suicide. The unpardonable sin, ladies and gentlemen, by the way, according to the Gospels, is rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. I want to make that very clear. Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing Um, I'm not going to have time to show it. It's on our YouTube channel, but I received a, a, a call on one of our radio programs of a mom, husband, Bri- or excuse me, son Brian, undetected mental health, just like Kay Warren's son. She said, "My husband died. I know he was a Christian. Is my hu- is my son with the Lord?" I answered that question. We showed that clip back to the lady in Tulsa. She said, "Well, our, my husband was a pastor for 14 years, and he took his life." She's shaking. She said, well, the associate pastor quoted Isaiah 57-1 to me and said that my husband, the the senior pastor, is now in hell. Is is that true? Friends, do you see what happens when we weaponize the Bible? And if I had to categorize all the questions I'm receiving today, it's that we have no biblical interpretation skills as Christians. And so just to hopefully bless your practices, Um, On the slide on Facebook.com, Christian Thinkers Facebook, I have just written a two-page guide on how to rightly interpret the Bible. Please read it. Please use it in your Bible studies. Don't ever allow a pastor, a preacher, a Bible study leader to send the Bible into free-fall mode. Have you ever been in a free-fall Bible study where everyone just goes around and says what the Bible means to them? Guess what? It can be weaponized. And when I, when I just said, oh, you know, Isaiah 57.1, Isaiah wasn't talking about suicide in that passage. He was actually talking about the nation of Israel. What that pastor was doing was doing what's called eisegesis, not exegesis. Do you know what eisegesis is? It's a Greek term. It means we read ourselves into the text. We read our life, our interpretation into the text. And friends, we have to stop doing that. And so, by the way, you might want to hand this guide. It's very helpful to those that are in the pastorate as well. It's right on Facebook. I wish I had more I could say about that. I think thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, in the four steps of how do we answer the most important apologetics question of our time, friends, I've received thousands of questions. Most people, number three, they find it difficult to believe that God truly loves them. We have lost this notion that we are the crown of God's creation the Imago Dei lives within us. We are so special, God became one of us. He did not become an animal. He did not become an inanimate object. God became a human. The Imago Dei is within us. And friends, I showed this at World Conference. I want to show it again if you didn't see it. um, I, I noticed this picture, and this is a picture of God's love for us. Um, And this is a graphic that we created. This is Central London. This is a footbridge. We used to live in the United Kingdom, as Dr. Clinton mentioned. This is a young man who would come literally to the end of of his rope. He was going to jump off the bridge, and these these strangers are walking home from work. And by the way, imagine how much effort it would have taken to get on the other side of that bridge. I mean, this guy was going to do it. He was going to jump. Don Ritchie wasn't going to talk him out of it, and these strangers collapse on this man. And they hold him for two hours. They will not let him go. Somebody is grabbing a hold of his lower legs. Do you see that? Another individual has, has loosened his belt. They are cla- Somebody, you don't tell me God works a mysterious way. Somebody has a rope walking home from work that day. <laughs> Lasso him. We are not letting you go. That is the picture of God's undying love for every single one of us. And one of the most important prayers that we can pray is, God, will you save me from myself? Friends, anytime you run into a Pharisee, God love them. They're in every church. I want you to show them this picture. When you want to give up on someone in your practice who, you know, you just want to give up on them, will you just save this photograph? You might want to even put it on your desk and say, God doesn't give up on anyone. I'm not going to give up on anyone. But we are fighting this battle that people don't believe God loves them. They don't think there is a purpose for their lives. And why would they? When you listen to the atheists of the world, this is Richard Dawkins. Friends, I wrote about this extensively in my book, Unimaginable What the World Would Be Like Without Christianity. Here's a great message we can go home and tell our children. Lily, Faith, Justin, Abel Ryder, and Jackson, your life has no purpose, no design. There is no evil, there is no good, there is just blind, pitiless indifference. Have a nice life. That is the worldview of atheism, and I want to make this extremely clear. If there is no God, there is no humanity, and it becomes law of the jungle, and if I carry out an atheist worldview to its fullest extent, I can walk by this animal not created in God's image. They have no value. Their life is purposeless. It is survival of the fittest. I can walk by them and feel no shame if they end their life. That is what fills the vacuum without Christianity, and I want to make sure you understand that very clearly. Friends, I can quote Peter Singer. We can no longer, and by the way, up there with J.P. Moreland, he's been called the most important ethicist philosopher of our time. We no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are special. Is there any wonder, by the way, parenthetical note, people doubt God's love for them? They are not a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all the other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. This is the message of culture. And this is, friends, why I wrote my book, Unimaginable, What the World Would Be Like Without Christianity. And I wanted to equip the church. There are 40 pages of citations at the back. I can say more, but it is a scary world and we must remind people God loves them. He loves them with an undying love that will never ever let them go. I'm going to keep you right on time, friends. Number 4, my final point. We how do we answer the most important apologetics question of our time? We remind people it is not a sin to ask for help. It is not a sin to question or doubt your faith, but it is a sin to stay there. I receive emails and messages and calls and comments from grandparents and parents on a daily, if not weekly, if not daily basis. And they all have a son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter, who made a disastrous decision because of an unanswered question. And because they were in a spiritual church environment that says, shut up and believe, check your brain at the door, it doesn't matter what you think, just take your Sunday school theology, and you know what, it's unbiblical to to ask that kind of question. This is where I get back to God's a big boy. And friends, I want to say this, speaking intelligently about suicide will not cause it to occur, but it can definitely prevent it from happening. We have to teach our people to speak, and we have such an opportunity, did you know that? The good news is this is the apologetics question of our time, and if we can encourage our pastors and our church leaders, and if we can change the thinking at the highest level, we can reach the world with this one issue. The church should be setting the pace, reaching people, and not the last to the table discussing it. Friends, we have to also tell people that not seeking help not seeking help from spiritual godly counselors. You don't want to stay in that isolation. I thank God for every one of you who counsel, every one of you who minister to individuals. God bless you for doing that. I want to close with this. You might want to get a picture of this. I'm I'm not for sure if I I took a photograph of this. I tell the story at length in my Unanswered book, but this is the William Cooper John Newton Museum. It's located not far from where Audrey and I lived in Oxford, England. I close with this story. William Cooper, and by the way, Americans, we always pronounce it wrong. We want to pronounce it Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R. The Brits pronounce it Cooper. William Cooper had just been checked out of St. Albans insane asylum for seven years. He was always suicidal. He was having all kinds of mental challenges. And that year, when he was checked out, it's interesting... Um, He had a pastor, a new rector in town in the little village of Olney, comes to knock on the door of his front door, and he sticks out his hand, he said, hi William, my name's John Newton, I'm the new pastor here in Olney, would you like to write hymns together? Everyone in the village knew that William Cooper was extremely gifted. By the way, you know that passage that, you know, people that might be a little more biblically literate and don't don't raise your hand? Remember when that passage we think is a Bible passage, God works in mysterious ways? That's not a Bible verse. That's actually from the pen of William Cooper. William Cooper wrote, oh, for a closer walk with God, there is a fountain filled with blood. These are from the lips and the hand of William Cooper. And yet he was dejected, suicidal, debilitating depression. And John Newton, the pastor, walks up and says, let's write hymns together. One interesting New Year's Day, 1773, they were particularly inspired in their devotional life, and they began writing out these words that, of course, we know is the most famous Christian song of all time, Amazing Grace. And William and John Newton presented it at that men's Bible study together in 1773. Amazing Grace comes out in the only hymns, O-L-N-E-Y. And people don't realize of the 300 hymns, 70 of them alone are authored by William Cooper, a man who is suicidal, depressed, who pastors today likely would have given up on or or left isolated on the back row. But it was John Newton in the 18th century who said, I'm going to write hymns with him. Do You see as a church how we have an opportunity to be present, to minister to people, to bring them involved, and to use them even in the point of their adversity. Friends, I hope that you will help me answer the most important apologetics question of our time. I have so much more I wanted to share with you, but I do want to honor your time. I want to resource you and equip you. We have an unanswered book, Bible study and video series. And then definitely pick up Unimaginable, my newest book by Baker. We have some other materials. Friends, I would love to meet with you. I'd love to shake your hand. Please connect with us on social media. Love to come and and encourage you in any way I can. Friends, if you will help me answer the most important apologetics question of our time, will you raise your hand just so I can be encouraged? I wanna see all those hands. I'm gonna help you answer it. That really encourages me. God bless you. You all have been an amazing, amazing audience. Thank you so much. Friends, this is Jeremiah, and my prayer is that when you hear that story of John Newton and William Cooper, you will find yourself in the story and minister to someone who is challenged or hurting around you right now. Now, we've gotta step away to to a break, but when we come back, i have on hold joining us for a very important interview that's gonna answer a question that so many of you have asked. How do we do mental health in the workplace? What are some immediate steps that we can implement and the specific for employers, employees who... Um, are concerned about the lack of mental health preparation in the workplace. My good friend John Gibson is chairman of energy technology. Uh, You'll immediately recognize his voice because he's been on this program before. One of our most uh, downloaded shows ever uh, was John Gibson and I taking your calls and discussing the integration of faith and business. John has spent three years in the U.S. Army before attending Auburn. Uh, He said his military experience as a non-commissioned officer was the best leadership training he ever had. Of course, he went on to earn other degrees working nights and weekends, earning his master's degree from University of Houston. He has had an amazing and continues to have an amazing career in the corporate world. He's one of the most respected business leaders in my home city of Houston, Texas, but he's also respected internationally because he's lived and he's worked internationally. He currently serves as director and audit chair of of different energy companies, uh, but he's an incredible father, a great husband, and a really fun grandfather. I can't wait to hear his insights on how we can do mental health in the workplace. Stay with us. I've got John Gibson coming right up. Welcome back to the Jeremiah Johnson friends. I'm in Dallas, Texas. And as you heard on the other side of the break, we have John Gibson, who's joining us from the great state of Texas, also the city of Austin, where he's been working. John, thanks for coming back to the program.
1: I'm delighted to Jeremiah. I hope I can help.
0: Hey, um, as I mentioned uh, at the top of the hour, uh, uh, one of our top five most downloaded shows, friends, if you've missed it, is my conversation with John Gibson on the integration of faith and business. So John is no stranger to the Jeremiah Johnson show. I want to encourage all of you to go back uh, both to the blog and the different archive formats. Check out the entire hour we did on the integration of faith and business. But, John, we've been discussing this program, this hour, the number one question that I've been asked after receiving 30,000 questions now. Uh, that we've aggregated is all around the mental health discussion. And John, I need your help. Um, Last week I was speaking at an event in Michigan and a businessman who has 200 employees um, said, Jeremiah, I don't even know how to begin the conversation of mental health in the workplace. So John, my first question to you is, what is corporate America missing in the mental health discussion right now?
1: Jeremiah, what a question. Uh... Unfortunately, personal experience. Um, as CEO of a company, I, I had a, a employee that was bipolar and and uh, really difficult uh, between the different uh, swings. Had a supervisor that loved him uh, dearly and uh, took care of him, and actually would go and get him from home when he wouldn't show for work and was in a, a down phase. Uh, it would worked with his parents. Uh, and others and in order to make sure that he got to work and was productive and, and kept his job. So uh, his supervisor literally made the difference in his life because he cared. He actually, I'll use the word love, he loved his, his employee enough to really reach out and, and help him. Unfortunately, uh, the young man um, broke up with a girlfriend and took his own life as a result mm-hmm. of that. And you have to understand that those kinds of swings and and people that are affected by that in their lives can result in their, in, in death, so the first thing I think you have to do is really reward supervisors that have passion for employees and care about them and I wish I'd done more for the man that really made a difference in this young man's life for for several years before wow. he tragically took his life.
0: Wow. Um, as it relates i mean to, to as a business owner, as someone who has been CEO and chairman of these companies around the world, I mean what else are we missing in the mental health discussion to where most most people that email this program feel like they 're not being equipped in the workplace as supervisors to even have that discussion they know they know they have a subordinate who is struggling, but they don 't feel equipped to have that discussion. What can we do
1: well it's you know, it depends on the size of corporation. I tell you, if you're a small company, that you just have to teach the people that report to you that caring about other people is the number one issue. Mm-hmm. And that identifying these problems and having open conversations shouldn't re- result in termination. It just should result in a change in, in how they're managed. But as you get larger, you have to imp- implement processes. And so you truly need to have your HR staff professionally trained in how to deal with people that have mental issues I mean this is something that I mean it's through no fault of their own they struggle and I think mm-hmm. we have an obligation to provide a workplace that makes them successful and it doesn't take much in the terms of modification uh, of the workplace or in how you manage them to really have them thrive and be tremendous contributors in the workplace
0: John let's switch gears to the CEOs the the men and women who are listening to this broadcast and who lead corporations companies one of the sad things in my opinion when you read the biographies of Steve Jobs Jeff Bezos um Elon Musk are the people that all have PTSD who were, who used to work for these individuals I mean true blue PTSD um what is it about CEOs some CEOs I'm not I'm not projecting this on all um, that they can have such a negative mental effect on some of the people that have to work for them. I mean, what, what should we learn by, from that for the business leaders um, who are listening to you?
1: Well, you probably should learn that uh, people with mental issues can actually be highly successful. I think all of them that you've yeah. named, uh, they themselves could have, can use help. And so what you're seeing is a manifestation of their own problems you know, in the workplace, and clearly you can be highly successful and be challenged in your mm-hmm. your interpersonal skills and in your relationships. I think all of those had issues that they had to deal with. And so, but when you deal with somebody like that, I've worked for people that were, you know, I hate using this term, Jeremiah, but I've worked for some that didn't have mental issues. They were just evil. And mm-hmm. so you, yeah. you have to separate between people that have uh, ill will towards others versus those that just are uh, have no understanding of other people, right? They, they lack any empathy. And so it's all about what they want to do and what they want to achieve. And that's really the the kinds of people that are incredibly successful sometimes are singular focus where everything else is irrelevant. Uh, Those people are not going to be the people that care for people. And that's not the mainstream. That's going to be, highly successful few as opposed to the normal business, and you can expect normal businesses to actually have processes in place to take care of people.
0: What I love about discussing this with you, John, is you're successful in business, but you're also successful spiritually, and what our last program proved is you can be successful in both. What do you think about a growing trend? I think it's positive, uh, but it, it is a step of faith, to use that term the growing trend of corporations that are using chaplaincy and other 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 advocates, counselors, that they're part of the payroll, they're part of the HR team, uh, because they view people as the best asset in the company, their own employees. What do you think about that?
1: All in favor. I mean, I, I think one of the hardest things to do as a CEO is it sort of crosses the line, and you do it well, but I guess, uh, you know, a lot of people need to talk about where they are in their lives with regard to suicide, with regard to in some cases even homicide in, in terms of how mm-hmm. they feel about others. You know, you need an outlet for that so that we don't end up with with people that feel hopeless and end up you know with the shootings that we're seeing. That sense of hopelessness needs to be dealt with on a one on one basis by them having a relationship with somebody that can help them through that. And we got. We must help other people. We must figure out how to remove hopelessness. And I think having chaplaincy in the workplace could be a big step forward in, in trying to help in that area.
0: And I think this gets back to this integration of faith and business. I mean, what do you, what do you, what is your advice to young businessmen and women who are listening to us right now? Who, you know, they're. And I know it gets back to our other conversation, but John, I just get hundreds of questions around these issues that they're afraid to wear their faith in their workplace or they're afraid to reach out to someone because they don't want to be seen as proselytizing, and so they just do the worst thing. They remain in isolation or they remain in silence. I mean, what are some immediate steps um, that they can do in their workplace if they do want to let their light shine, as it were?
1: Well, I think uh be a little bit out there, Jeremiah, but I would tell you that if you have to tell somebody you're a Christian at work, then you probably aren't leading a life that represents uh, our Savior very well. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, as as a consequence, you ought to show up to work every day to where everybody knows you're a Christian and you have to say nothing about it. Now, that kind of love and that kind of appreciation for others and caring, like the supervisor of this young man uh, that we lost many years ago, that kind of caring, loving— that comes from a heart that loves our Lord and serves him, and you don't have to tell anybody about your faith in order for them to know what's driving your life.
0: Mm-hmm. So good. John, tell us um, tell us about that experience. I mean, as far as losing an employee um, to completed suicide— Um, you know, and you're not, I mean, you're not alone, John, I, I've ministered to a young man who was a patent attorney and he was one of the few attorneys Bill Gates would get on the phone with. And sadly, in a, in a very depressed, chronically depressed situation, he took his life and there seems to be so much despair. And then we don't discuss it, but having on the other side of that now, what is your encouragement to the business leaders who are listening to you now? You know, what is your advice, John, because I really need it from one business leader to all the business leaders who are listening um, about mental health in the workplace?
1: Uh, Educate yourself as to how to identify it if you're a small business owner. Uh, Reach out to professionals if you're a larger business owner in order to bring in the right programs for, for all your employees. Get the processes in place. But I think the biggest thing you can do is just care. And I won't. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, Jeremiah. That you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about what to do in the business, you know, and workplace. And one of the greatest places for for anxiety and for depressions actually pastors. And so I've known yeah. a pastor recently that tried to take his own life. And and so I tell you, you too need a network of people that can keep you, you know, straight and and listen to you and provide a sounding board for you. Because any of us that care, we can care enough that it becomes. A problem in our own life with depression and we have to have a way to charge our battery and we do it through prayer we do it through relationship with Jesus we do it through the, the people that he puts in our lives that give us the energy to go on
0: mm. I totally agree, and um, and we've discussed that on the program. I think the most at-risk group, um, especially, is pastors because they so often suffer in silence. They're not supposed to ever have a problem. And as I said earlier in the program, Christians don't gossip. We just share prayer requests. <laughs> and so you know, why do we we don't we we're reticent then to share that we have these challenges? And I, I'm acutely aware of this just because of the business leaders that I've been speaking to lately that feel like. They are a pastor in the sense of the word, these Christian business leaders, and they want to do more. Um, here's another challenge. I mean, John, and we're being real. I love this program because we get really real. We talk about these questions at the levels they need to be discussed. But he said, Jeremiah, my first problem is I feel like everyone in my HR department, they themselves are struggling with mental challenges right now. Um, you know, in, in 30 seconds, what's your advice to him if if you're in that situation?
1: Well, it, it, you know, <laughs> If you've got an HR uh, department that is uh, highly depressed, we probably need to work on the organizational yeah, issues that exactly. cause that. And with <laughs> the people we're hiring, we probably have a hiring issue here if we've got them all uh, in a state of depression. But uh, it's, it can happen. I mean, it's, you know, when companies are struggling, you have to really have the ability to stop and look at the macro issues and say, yeah. when you're losing money as a company, and you're you're having to do layoffs, and you're struggling. The CEO th- 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 himself needs support because it, those things can be really hard on people that care. Yeah, And
0: absolutely. You know, often
1: you go, "Well, that cold-hearted guy he let go ten percent of the people." Well, that's that's not what happened. What What happens is you feel like you have no other choice in order for the business to survive and and for you to meet your obligations to the people that you you that ha- hold your debt to the shareholders that you have a dividend with, all of a sudden you have so many stakeholders that you are, t- are trying to balance between the needs, mm-hmm. and that's typically utilitarian, which is I'm doing the most I can for the most. Mm-hmm. But as a Christian, I have a deontological component where I, I have to do my duty to Christ as well, which means I need to care about all of the, the people that are impacted by the decisions mm-hmm. and, uh, and treat them with the grace of my love. It's hard. Yeah. so, with an HR department that's struggling, uh, you know, you, it's bring in somebody. I mean, I can tell you, anytime I've had trouble and I did not know exactly what to do, ask for help.
0: That's right. And so,
1: let your pride just slip away and go, I need somebody to help me out here. And I can tell you, people love to help, and, and the price of that help is cheap if it saves right. a single life.
0: That's exactly right. Friends, our guest today has been John Gibson. What a powerful um, story to end on, but also what great insights. I love that story you shared about the individual who reached out and cared to the person that was struggling in your company. John, thanks so much for joining us again on the program. I hope you'll come back and see us soon.
1: Take care. Look, Look forward to doing that.
0: All right, friends. We'll be right back. Friends, welcome back to my closing thoughts here on the program today. I want to encourage you, if you're struggling today with a mental challenge, and as I often say art in our, to our audiences, unfortunately, Christians, we don't gossip. We just share prayer requests. <laughs> People always laugh when I say that because it's so true. Um, and I can only imagine how you've been hesitant to share with someone that you've been struggling. Uh, and because of that, you've been suffering in isolation that's what mental challenges can do to us. They can make us suffer in isolation and it's a literal downward spiral from there. So I'm going to ask you, would you just do one thing? I have one thing to challenge you with based on this entire discussion in our program today. Will you reach out to a trusted Christian friend, a pastor, a Christian leader you respect, pull them aside and say, hey, I've been struggling. I've got some depression, anxiety, anxiety mental challenges i'm worried about my mental fitness or mental wellness will you just reach out and stop the silence i guarantee you if that person's close to you in your life they're already praying for you they have a heart for you um, and guess what when you do that it immediately breaks a bondage a bondage of silence a bondage of suffering and silence and so my immediate step is just to ask you will you do that will you pray and say lord give me the boldness you know, the Christian life is not to be lived out in isolation. We live and we believe and we even suffer in community together. Take a moment, pray, just pick up the phone, set up a coffee break and just say, will you help me? I just need help. I'm struggling. That's what I'm hoping you'll do. That's the first step. It's the most important. And friends, if you're that person who gets the call, I've equipped you today in the broadcast how to take a call from someone who's struggling with a mental challenge. Friends, what a joy to minister in this space. We're going to keep talking about this very important question on the Jeremiah Johnston Show. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Jeremiah Johnston Show. If you have any follow-up questions from today's program, we'd love to hear from you. You can submit your questions at askjjj.com. From there, you can also connect with us across social media. All our conversations are available because of listener support. To find out more information, head over to myfaithradio.com. And so you never miss a show, you can subscribe to our podcast free in iTunes, the Google Play Store, or even our RSS feed. Thank you for sharing our show with a friend and growing the impact of our ministry.